Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know something. As you've probably already figured out, I'm recording these videos and podcasts in advance. Today, the actual recording day, is Saturday, April 8th, which is my sister Adrienne's birthday. If she were alive today, she would be 31 years old. So... It's a tough day for me. It is the second toughest day of the year after the day she passed away. I'm gonna do my best to hold it together, but just keep in mind on the day I'm recording this, it is her birthday and I'm thinking a lot about her. All right, let's get started. Day three, Friday, May 18th, 2001. Your blue, the most soothing shade in the spectrum, the color of a clear summer sky or deep reflective ocean. Blue has traditionally symbolized trust, solitude, and loyalty. Most likely a thoughtful person who values spending time on your own, you'd rather connect deeply with a few people than have a bunch of slight acquaintances. Luckily, making close friends isn't that hard since people are naturally attracted to you. They're soothed by your calming presence. Cool and collected, you rarely overreact. Instead, you think things through before coming to a decision. That level-headed, thoughtful approach to life is patently blue and patently you. Adrian's journal entry dated April 27, 2001. The results from What's Your True Color quiz. Today, Adrian will have a biopsy done in the afternoon. A new nurse explains the surgeons will insert a vascular access device, VAD, during the surgery. She gives us a booklet aptly named How to Care for Your Vascular Access Device. The VAD is a soft plastic tube that is used to give fluids like medicine, blood products, and nutrition right into the bloodstream. It is also known as a catheter, port, or central line. John and I will be taking a class on how to care for Adrian's central line. The nurse points to a picture and says Adrian will get a double lumen, two tubes connected to one tube coming out of her chest below her collarbone. It looks like an upside down Y. A double lumen port allows her to receive medicine and fluids at the same time. Adrian will no longer have to be pricked to start an IV, which pleases her because she hates needles. However, the VAD is not without its problems. The line is susceptible to infections, and it needs daily maintenance to prevent such infections. It must never get wet. Adrian is no longer allowed to take showers. Before taking a bath, I will have to put the line in plastic, seal it as much as possible, and tape it to her chest. Adrian's eyes flicker and her chest slumps. This news quashes her spirit. I look at the picture again and imagine it in Adrian's chest. 
the nurse continues talking about this alien piece of medical ingenuity that will become a part of our daily lives. Do all nurses try to normalize this environment? Can't she see how upset we are? Not only does Adrian hate baths, but now she will also be dependent on me in order to take one. I think about children who have to wear casts for broken bones. Casts usually come off in six weeks. Skimming the booklet, my heart sinks when I read. A VAD can stay in for as long as three years. Dr. Coleman, who insists we call her Christina, comes in only to ask John and me to step outside. I can't count the number of times I've heard that line on television, but now it's real. Can you step outside? I wonder if anyone ever says no to that question. No, I can't. No matter what you want to tell me, I have a perceptive teenager who will badger me until I repeat what you are about to say. So save us all some time and say it in here, in her room, to her face. So what do we do? We step outside. The results from the liver panel are back. Adrian has hepatitis B and appears to be a carrier of hepatitis C as well. I pretend to know what that means. Christina asks if Adrian ever had a blood transfusion or if our mother has a history of hepatitis. No blood transfusions and no... Wait. Over a year ago, our mother called and said she had hepatitis B. I didn't believe her. I didn't tell Christina our mother's always sick with some new illness or disease. Even her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, which qualifies her for disability benefits, is questionable. It never occurred to me our mother might be telling the truth about the hepatitis, or it could have affected Adrian. Mother said God cured her like he cured Naomi Judd. To me, the alleged hepatitis was another example of mother's Munchausen syndrome, an artificial disorder characterized by a person feigning illness for attention. According to Christina, when hepatitis occurs in this country in someone as young as Adrian, the most logical conclusion is a blood transfusion or transmission from mother to child during childbirth. She says Adrian has the hepatitis B surface antigen, indicating an active, perhaps chronic infection. Even though Christina isn't attacking or judging me, I become defensive and repeat my mantra. Adrian has never been sick before, at least not since she's been living with me. Okay, there was that time when her tonsils were so swollen she couldn't breathe. It was a Saturday afternoon. I remember because John took my car to work. Our friend Jessie gave us a ride to urgent care where the doctor gave Adrian some medicine and she was better the next day. My mind scrambles to produce more evidence that I am a good parent. Adrian gets a physical every June. I fight to get her thyroid tested since most women in our family have thyroid problems, which are genetic. Not only has Adrian had her hepatitis B vaccination series, but also had all of her childhood immunizations repeated prior to beginning middle school. I tried to get her immunization records, but our mother denied having a copy, and the former school never sent them. Her elementary school in Hollywood let it slide. All they required was proof of a recent TB vaccination, which Adrian received her first month in Los Angeles. However, the Burbank School District insisted Adrian redo all of her vaccinations. Adrian had never seen a dentist until she lived with me. When she was 10 years old, she had a baby root canal and continued to need fillings over the next several years. She hates to brush her teeth, but I make her do it despite the battle that ensues. When she was six years old, Adrian came to visit me in Los Angeles for 10 days. She arrived with ringworm all over her body. I took care of it immediately and she returned home healthy. 
proof does not mitigate my guilt. There's not a better word to describe what I'm feeling right now. Culpability, criminality, sin, wrongdoing, and shame don't suffice. It's guilt. I never got Adrian tested for hepatitis. I should have believed our mother. I recover from my reverie when Christina tells us to get tested for hepatitis because there's a slim chance we could have been exposed to it. I agree to do it, but I can't think about my own health right now. I need to learn more about hepatitis. When we return to her room, Adrian insists on knowing what Dr. Christina said to us. John and I have an unspoken agreement. We will be truthful with Adrian about her illness. She may only be 15, but she is smart, wise beyond her years, and knows bullshit when she hears it. Explaining our choice to be honest with Adrian will be lost on doctors who have spent years asking parents to step outside so little Bobby, Susie, or Tracy won't hear the prognosis. Stepping outside, how to break the bad news to parents, must be a prerequisite course in medical school. Adrian asks a lot of questions about hepatitis, none of which John and I can answer yet. There must be a relationship between the hepatitis and tumors, but I realize Christina never explained what it is. Time to go, a nurse says. My chest tightens as the tension increases around my heart. I can almost feel my blood pressure rising. Time to go. Time to open up my child. Time to insert a tube in her chest. Time to find out the verdict. Time, time, time. John and I walk alongside Adrian's gurney as she is taken to surgery, which is located on the seventh floor. We ride the peacock elevators. I lean over, tell Adrian I love her, and whisper Tanya Harding in her ear, our family motto for good luck. One evening as I was leaving for the premiere of my play Full Body Massage, Adrian ran out of the house and stood next to the front gate. Having spent many years around theater people, she knew saying good luck was considered bad luck. Dancers say merde, which means shit in French, while actors say break a leg. Her brow furrowed. She smiled. With a quick karate chop motion in the air, she said, Tanya Harding. <laughs> I got the joke. She skipped into the house, proud she had made me laugh. Her dry, wry humor is often lost on her peers, but never on me. The massive doors to the OR close with a soft thud. We stare at them. I wonder if John is as scared as I am. There's a woman standing next to us. She must sense our fear because she asks about our child's surgery. Liver biopsy, I say, needed to determine the cause of multiple tumors. I sound edgy, like a robot on speed. Noelle tells us her three-year-old daughter, Rose, was born with a rare degenerative liver disease. She is on her second liver transplant. Before I can ask about the first one, Noelle goes on. I imagine she has told this story a hundred times. Rose's first transplant occurred when she was a year old, but her new liver failed when someone made a mistake with her medications. Mistake? Who is this person who made this mistake? A pharmacist? A doctor? Noelle is so casual about it. This time, she says, Rose is getting a piece of her father's liver. Both Noelle's husband and daughter are in surgery. I, I look around. She is alone. I want to hug her, but I don't. As I walk into the waiting room, I feel better. 
God, that sounds awful. If I tell John, he will say I'm experiencing schadenfreude. He loves to use big words most people don't understand. Pleasure derived from the misfortune of others. I wouldn't call it pleasure, just appreciation. We have friends here, a strong support system. Adrian's uncles, Jesse and Jared, are here along with Anya. We are expecting more people later. When I relate Noel's story, our friends offer a piece of their livers without hesitation. Live donor liver transplants are considered a fairly new procedure, says Anya. Her mother is a doctor, which automatically makes her one too. It's her most annoying character trait, but in this instance, I drink in the information. She explains the liver is the only organ that can regenerate, which means a portion of a liver can be taken from a healthy adult donor and transplanted into the recipient. Ideally, the livers in both bodies regain normal function within a few weeks. We are getting ahead of ourselves. We don't even know if Adrian is eligible for a transplant, but considering how many livers are up for grabs in this room, I sure hope she is. The surgery is expected to take several hours. We take turns eating lunch. Anya, John, and I go first. Even though I can't taste the food, I force myself to eat. I need to keep my strength up. I've already lost a few pounds. I can tell because my jeans are looser. Anya's light banter can't shake the sense of doom hovering over my plate. Think positive thoughts. Guess what? We were wrong. They're not tumors. It's not... I can't finish the conversation in my head. The black UFO-shaped cloud won't go away. It's staying in there, mocking me, penetrating my head with, be ready for the inevitable bad news. You know it's coming. We go back upstairs to relieve Jesse and Jared so they can eat too. We are Adrian's posse. United we stand. I know Adrian is rolling her eyes at me from her deep anesthetic-induced sleep. Oprah's voice resonates from the TV, which is perched up high right below the ceiling. She is supposed to be asking about Nicole Kidman's upcoming film, Moulin Rouge, but instead she is confirming Nicole is hurt and surprised by Tom Cruise's petition for divorce after 10 years of marriage. A few days ago, I would have felt sorry for Nicole. I like her. Now I'm thinking, divorce? Is that all? Don't worry, Nick. You'll move on. Fuck Tom. Your children are healthy. That's all that matters. Dr. Jorge, one of the surgeons, walks out of the OR. He reports the central line is in and the biopsy was a success. Now the surgical team will look at the tissue sample under a microscope. I can't stand it. He's been in there and has seen Adrian's liver. Why is he being secretive? Does Adrian have cancer? I ask. The words just fall off my lips. I could be asking, do you want a cup of tea? Same amount of syllables, only the former has a desperate, nonchalant tone. Yes or no will do. Dr. Jorge says he will return when he has more information. I don't need it. By sidestepping the question, he gave the answer. Yes. Can you please step outside? Asked Dr. Jorge. I hate those words. Nothing positive comes after them. Like obedient soldiers, John and I follow him into the corridor. Unlike Dr. Lin, there is color in his face. He expected what he found. Your sister has cancer. My worst fears confirmed. 
cancer. I knew what it was all along, but I had not accepted it. I can see the words floating on a banner, pulled by an airplane, waving in the wind, mocking me. Your sister has cancer. Adrian has cancer. Kiddo has cancer. The airplane picks up speed. Your sister has cancer. Adrian has cancer. Kiddo has cancer. Your sister has cancer. Adrian has cancer. Kiddo has cancer. My eyes wet. My throat closes. My stomach drops. He continues. We believe your sister has a type of liver cancer called HCC or hepatocellular carcinoma. It has metastasized to her lungs, which means she is in stage four. It's very serious. His words are steady. His eyes are not. I see pain, sympathy, but not an ounce of hope. Dr. Jorge can't fix it. Every pore of my face is soaked. Tears flow down, down, dripping off my chin, becoming silent drops on the floor. Liver cancer. I have never heard of liver cancer before. Cirrhosis, yes. Too much alcohol causes liver damage. What did he say? H something. Cellular is the second word. I need the fog sucked out of my head. I, I can't think. Dr. Jorge promises to give us literature about the cancer. He leaves us alone. As I stare at the puddle on the floor, I think, he never said her name. I trudge into the waiting room and pass our friends. I go over to the large window that has a small nook. I sit in it, my knees tucked into my chest. John attempts to comfort me, but I push him away. The grocery store John's is below us. Many Hispanic women are pushing grocery carts to their cars, young children playing around their legs. School must be out because I see older children too, talking, laughing, happy. Normal people with normal lives. They don't know what just happened on the seventh floor of Children's Hospital. This tall building does not exist. Two days ago, I was one of them. There is Lucky Fashion. I bought one of my favorite outfits there. A black, tight, two-piece skirt set made of rayon with a subtle pattern of light blue flowers. My geisha attire. Adrian wore it to my friend Marilyn's wedding last year. Although we have different tastes, we occasionally share clothes. At five, five and a half, Adrian is three inches taller than I am. Doctors predicted she would be 5'8". She hates that she fell short. She's size 8. Most clothes size 7, 8. One size up for me. How long do I sit in that window? It seems like minutes to me. John says it was for almost an hour. I don't know. Where is Mimi when I need her? A mean girl in my preschool. Mimi pinched kids for fun. Pinch me, Mimi. Wake me up. I won't pull your blonde ponytail again. Bring me out of this nightmare, please. While I sit in the window, Anya is on the phone with her mother, who works at the National Institute of Health, NIH. When Anya tells her mother the diagnosis, her mother is silent. Dr. Sophia Sarkozy always has a scientific, rational, non-emotional approach to life that serves her well in her profession. 
When her mother says nothing, Anya is surprised and feels her reaction is disproportionate to the situation. She has never known her mother to react that way before. It's one more thing, one more battle to win. We've overcome so many different problems. This is just one more problem. Dr. Sakozi replies, you will win if you measure winning in terms of having good days and good hours. What are you saying? How long is she going to live? Nobody can tell you that. Nobody knows how long anyone is going to live. After that phone call, Anya calls her husband Alex and tells him to come to the hospital right away. Anya turns around and speaks to anyone who is listening. This is war, and it's a war that we're going to fight to win. Her declaration of war brings me out of the window. She is right. It is time to put on our battle gear and start fighting. Then I remember I have to work tomorrow. From May to October, I work as a clown and our games person for company picnics. Saturdays and Sundays are booked solid throughout the summer. When I started in 1996, I took Adrian with me to work. She got her face painted, participated in games, and played bingo with the other kids. One time at Silverado Canyon Park, she enjoyed a hayride and saw a litter of newborn piglets at the petting zoo. The catering staff was convinced I never fed Adrian because they once witnessed her devouring seven hot dogs and three hamburgers within a few hours. One of my bosses promised Adrian would have a job when she turned 14. Last summer, she worked as a clown. My clown name is Red. Adrian named herself Blue, her favorite and current hair color. Making $125 per day, I allowed her to spend $25 while the rest went into her savings account. She has saved $900. Once she earns another hundred, she plans to buy her first mutual fund, John's idea. Her earnings convinced her classmates they should all become clowns. I am proud of her work ethic and her ability to think long-term about her future. Then it hits me. She can't work this summer. I never miss work. I can't afford to. I've never bailed out on a picnic. When I had laryngitis, the group found my silent clown act amusing. When a one-inch piece of wood went under my thumbnail, making it the biggest splinter I've ever had, I finished the picnic and went to the ER afterward. I take John's cell phone into the corridor. When I hear my boss's voice, the words tumble out of my mouth like building blocks falling down haphazardly everywhere. Hi, it's Andrea. I at the hospital and um, no, no, not, it's not me. It's Adrian. Um, tumors and well, they're biopsy and cancer. I can't work tomorrow. I'm so sorry. I can't. He insists I not worry. He sounds calm. I want to be calm. My boss, our boss, sends Adrian his best wishes. When I return to the waiting room, Dr. Jorge gives us papers about HCC. He made copies from medical textbooks. I expected a brochure. He gives us a beacon of hope. There is a slight chance it might be ovarian cancer. Dr. Jorge felt a mass near Adrian's left ovary, so it's possible, especially since one of her only symptoms is lack of menstruation. 
Ovarian tumors often look like liver cells under a microscope. We will have a definite answer when the pathology report comes back on Monday. He doubts it's ovarian cancer and warns us not to get our hopes up. I see a flicker in his eyes. He wants to believe it's ovarian cancer. A young woman can live without her ovaries. John and I make a conscious decision to put on a happy face for Adrian. Not too happy, lest she suspects something. We want to be lucid when we tell her about the cancer. I can't wait to see her. She is the only person in recovery. Still groggy from anesthesia, she asks about the tumors. We assure her the biopsy went well and her central line is in place. In two days, we have mastered the art of evasion, another class taught at medical school. The nurses rave about Adrian's blue hair and dote on her. She seems tickled by all of the attention. I manage to steady my voice. How do you tell your sister, who is also your child, she has cancer? Our friends stay in the fourth floor waiting room so we can be alone with Adrian. She gradually wakes up and becomes more alert. Where do I start? John takes over and does most of the talking. We're going to be honest with you. We're not going to lie to you or keep anything from you. You have cancer. The doctors believe it is either liver cancer or ovarian cancer. We'll know on Monday. It would be better if it were ovarian cancer, but I feel the pounding in my heart and my ears. It hurts to hear the word cancer over and over again. Is it necessary to say it so many times? I suck back the corners of my mouth in an effort to smile, but I can't fool Adrian. Unlike her, when I genuinely smile, I show teeth. I listen to the silence. John never got past the word but. What's wrong with you guys? It's not like I'm going to die from cancer. So what's next? Chemo? God, she's tough. Where does it come from? I feel stupid for crying in the face of adversity when Adrian responds with such strength and courage. No one had mentioned chemotherapy yet, but like Adrian, I assumed it came with the territory. I can't count the number of times a female television character has been stricken with cancer. Even if you exclude the medical shows, you will find her. She is always beautiful, wears lots of fun wigs, and most importantly, she lives. How realistic is that picture? Adrian is anxious to see our friends, so I retrieve Jesse, Jared, Anya, and Alex, who recently arrived from the waiting room. Anne Getty's pictures hang on the wall here. Bright flowers and smiling, happy babies. What a facade. The pictures don't cheer me up, but our friends do. If they are upset, I can't tell. Unbeknownst to me, Adrian has made plans with them for the evening. At 9 p.m., we are watching Invader Zim on Nickelodeon. At Children's Hospital, not only does every room have a television with a VCR attached, but it also has Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel, along with the other major networks. Adrian says the only thing they're missing is MTV. Eli arrives in time for the show. Two episodes air that night, Germs and Dark Harvest. In Germs, Zim acquires special goggles, which allows him to see germs for the first time. He freaks out because germs are everywhere. In Dark Harvest, Zim is sick and sent to the nurse's office. He harvests other kids' organs. He spends most of the episode tracking down a lung. Adrian can't stop laughing. Everyone makes jokes about tracking down a pair of lungs for Adrian. 
Both episodes seem appropriate given our current situation. Creepy. Against my better judgment, I agree to go home with John tonight. I give in to peer pressure. The nurse encourages us to get some rest. They assure us Adrian will be fine. John reminds me I need clean clothes and a shower. I don't feel good about leaving Adrian, even though she is okay with it. We wait until everyone is gone and Adrian is fast asleep. That night is the first and last time John and I leave her alone in the hospital. We feel worse at home, alone together, wondering how she is doing. We fight over nothing and sleep even less. Whew, that was tough. <laughs> Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.